0: to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So I shouldn't have been surprised, but obviously Diana and I ran out of time. And while we had every intention to talk about those five core methods or five categories of refund fraud and how we're seeing fraudsters exploit them, and a few of the ways that they're Approaching each one. I ran out of time. I should have known. So that's what I'm going to do on this episode today. And I know it's Tuesday. And if you listen to the podcast on a regular basis, especially on the weeks that they come out, you're probably just as used to the cadence of episodes that I am. So typically, Tuesday episodes are conversations or interviews with fellow fraud fighters on various topics in different verticals and areas of online fraud. And then Thursdays are a combination of a few things. So sometimes it's me providing a deep dive on a specific issue that I've received several questions about or that I think is topical right now. Other times it's talking about topical news, things that may or may not impact you, but have an impact on online fraud or can be lessons learned by online fraud fighters. And then sometimes it's also like last week, we'll have a Thursday episode that's a part two of the conversation with the person that I talked to on Tuesday. And that just really depends on the conversation and the person and how much time they have and all of that. And as much as I would have loved to have Diana come back for this part, she is very busy. It was hard enough to schedule two times where we both had available. Because this is these are topics that I've covered in several presentations, as well as training, I think I can do this one on my own. But on Thursday's episode this week, I'm actually going to have a really good conversation with an awesome broadfighter who has actually fairly quickly become on my list of one of my lifelines well, I really love left field questions or just love to try to figure out what's going on or diagnose problems. Sometimes it's what is happening or maybe I need more insight from someone that's looking at it from a different perspective and I'm not on the ground and looking at it from a data perspective. And that especially happened with the master manipulators and the address manipulations around November and December with the triangulation fraud that Shoshana Maroney and I talked about in November, and I learned very quickly that this person is a very big wealth of college. And so I invited him to come on the podcast and kind of nerd out with me. And full disclosure, we've already recorded it. And it's really good. Of course, I can never pick a favorite podcast episode. Just like if I had more than one children, I couldn't pick them out either. But it's really good conversation. But I thought it was good to kind of keep this topic going and and be chronological so that whether you're listening to it right now or you come back and listen to these three episodes in a month or two, they're all together and easy to find. Though, first I wanted to clarify something that Diana and I talked about last week. We definitely didn't mean to imply that refund abuse or all other kinds of policy abuses aren't important and shouldn't be addressed. They absolutely should. (laughs) It's not... Policy abuse by good customers has always existed. Does it ebb and flow? Does it sometimes get a little more out of control than usual? Yeah, especially when the economy is tight and when people are used to consumerism and they might try to get away with a little bit more. They might try to abuse their favorite retailers. But that behavior looks very different than those who are intentionally and maliciously and systematically taking advantage of retailers claims department. I think it's just really dangerous. I think what we were mostly talking about last week and what I'm going to touch on in just a minute because it came up again after we recorded that episode. But I think it's dangerous to assume that or to yeah, to assume and to tell others that the majority of their refund claims that have gone up so high or that all of them are due to abusive customers. In a lot of cases, The people who are committing these refund claims fraud, they never were your customers. They don't care about your brand. They care about your products and they're selling them on third-party marketplaces. They're not people who have been longtime customers that are loyal to your brand that have a longtime history of spend. I'm not saying it's still okay for someone to do wardrobing, which a lot of high-end retailers of clothing know the word way too well, and that is Someone buys usually an expensive clothing item, wears it once and returns it. That is abuse and can cost the retailer money. Now, if they receive the item back and if it's in decent enough condition or they can make it look like new again, they can resell it and get their money back or they can sell it as is or discount it. And a lot of retailers are making decisions based on how long has this person been a customer? How much is their total spend? Those type of things. But they are a very different problem than what we're talking about. And I just think it can be dangerous and really waste companies' time if you're just saying all of this is due to abusive customers. In fact, the way one of the reasons why we found refund fraud is because several of those retailers made the assumption that this was all abusive customers and they worked with their fraud providers to create new products by the fraud providers to identify more abusive customers, whether that's through promo code abuse or refund fraud or return fraud, really, or various things like that. And they still had so many losses. They still had so many, even after they were tracking and they were able to tie together, oh, this customer has come outside of our policy. We say that you can, you know, each account can claim up to three times that an item wasn't received, or there's a lot more math behind it now for a lot of companies. But a lot of times they started to see, these are customers that have no history. This is the first time we've ever sent them to them and they're claiming something. And this scale is going far more. They're as far surpassing the amount of abusive customers. Like I said, you know, our biggest, our bigger point was just that it's important not to assume that all excessive refund claims are abusive because then you're solving the wrong problem. And on that note, Well, and actually I should say also, there's also a third category. So when a lot of, when retailers start diving into the root causes of a lot of these claims, and like I said, Diana and I have created a framework for that, knowing that a lot of retailers don't even have a way to know what the reasons were of all the refunds. They're just in a giant bucket of claims and it can take a little bit to untangle, but it is so informative and provides so much business intelligence to the rest of your business. It's definitely worth it. But there's a third category that we see fairly often too, and that is accidental. Sometimes there's system issues that you don't realize are causing, whether it's reporting issues or are causing items to go missing or things like that, you never know. So there's a lot of opportunity there too. And then don't forget that there are also legitimate claims. And especially with COVID and especially at the beginning when warehouses and distribution centers and all that had to social distance and there was a short supply of drivers and everything else, there were a lot of packages legitimately getting lost or damaged, but definitely not as many to make up all of this. Just like it's important to look at all of your chargebacks and know that you can't just say all of these are 100% hostile fraud. You also can't say all of these are 100% first party fraud unless you look in the details. And that's really what we were trying to say. And then a day or two after we had recorded these episodes, but I think before they had published, a listener sent me an article from an online publication that provided a new term for this that just I think it really bothered me. But maybe you have a different take. And if you do, I'd be interested. But they started to call this casual fraud. And I really felt like it was a missed opportunity because, and I think it was like 24 hours later, because sometimes I think of things that are funny way, way too late. But they send it to me on a Friday and I really wish I would have said, oh, does that make today casual fraud day? Sorry, we can all roll our eyes in unison for that. But calling something casual fraud is just, so what, we're supposed to just shrug our shoulders? Or, you know, if you're really cynical, you'd say maybe there are solution providers that want people to think that this is all abusive customer behavior because a lot of them haven't found solutions for identifying fraudulent refunds. I hope that's not the case, but just reading this article really frustrated me. But I also haven't had time to read, to reach out to the writer and Rebuttal it, but it was talking about a report that came out from a solution provider in our space that I have worked with a little bit before in the past. And they said that one in three online businesses say that criminal customers, in quotation marks, are now their number one risk factor. And then it says, Like part of a sentence says online merchants, apostrophe, right? So their own customers are almost as likely to commit fraud against them as organized criminals. So I was like, so are you saying you're supposed to treat your customers like criminals? Are you saying that your customers are impacting your bottom line just as much, if not more, than organized crime? How do you know that for sure? And how do you, what do you do with that, right? Are you supposed to have a bunch of false positives? Like it just seems that's really frustrating. And it did say that the way that they define casual fraud is that's on the rise is claiming items didn't arrive, free renting clothes by wearing and returning them, fake returns, and refund or promotion abuse. I've dove into the data for several retailers and that's, not the case. It's not all of it. I understand why you might think that, but that's like saying, again, it's like saying that all your chargebacks are due to first-party fraud. That doesn't seem like you've done your homework to identify and look at the identifiers of third-party hostile fraud and first-party fraud in your chargebacks. But also, if you would say that, then why Why aren't you addressing it? First and first party fraud can be addressed. We all know my thoughts and feelings on that because I built the friendly fraud process for a very large travel company, as well as for a lot of merchants in my consultancy and helps them use that information from their first party chargebacks to reduce them overall. And the same thing can happen with refund fraud and with abuse, but you have to get to the root cause or else you're trying to solve the wrong problem. And that's why calling it casual fraud just felt like that's even worse than saying friendly fraud, which I already don't like. But it's just like, eh, it's casual. What are you? So are we just shrugging our shoulders or are we saying we need to suspect all of our customers are now just as bad as organized criminals? I don't know. I think that it's just it's important not to assume that this is all due to legitimate customers abusing your systems and processes. And this is why you need to first ensure that you have the right data point, like the claim reasons and the attributes and the items, and there's several things within that. And then you need to analyze and quantify the different root causes. It's going to take a little bit of time, but it doesn't actually need to take that long. As long as you are able to get the data points that you need, it's something that you can do in a few weeks and it will be so beneficial to your company. Because if you go to your leadership and you say, hey, all of this extra loss and all of these extra refund claims are all due to good customers, or maybe you go the other way and you say they're all due to bad actors who have found a way to steal from us without having to get in a fraudulent credit card, and so we need to do this and this, like, no, that would really impact your credibility if you didn't know the actual reasons. Like I said, without knowing the root cause, you might be trying to solve the wrong problem. And that's just wasting time and making the problem even bigger. And then the other thing I want to say is, and I think that this came up in the last episode, I can safely say that not all of the refund claims fraud or even promo code abuse is being committed by customers. I see it all the time on criminal channels within encrypted messaging apps, within social media. Those people are not your customers they probably never made a legitimate purchase on your website before. They're just stealing from you. And once retailers look at the root causes of these excessive and inaccurate claims, it's, and it really depends on the company and their average order value and the resale value of their items and the policies they already have in place and everything else, but generally speaking, only about, it's usually anywhere from a quarter to a half, but I would say safely like around a third, like 30 to 40-ish percent usually can be attributed to longtime customers. But it's fairly easy to identify. And those are things that there's at least one or two online fraud providers that traditionally were created to identify payment fraud at the time of purchase or the time of account opening or login. They've now been able to identify different data points at the time of transaction or the time of login, where, hey, this customer has exceeded the policies. Or I know that you set a limit that they can only claim three times that something didn't arrive or that it was broken. They've hit that. Are you sure you want to give them another chance? Or Maybe they've claimed that they didn't come, and so now we're going to say, hey, we really want you to get this item, and we hate that you didn't get it before, so we're going to require signature required, or you're going to need to pick it up at our store, or something like that. Those are policy things, but that's very different than someone intentionally and maliciously ordering an item on your website, and usually it's, it's almost always the first time. It's usually their first order. And if it's not, their previous order was very low dollar. So there are some of them that will do a couple of purchases here or there, but they're very small just to work up a history not super common because they learned that they didn't have to. They were doing that a little bit at first, like during COVID. And then a lot of times they're like, oh, we don't even have to because a lot of these online companies are paying a lot of money for customer acquisition. They want new customers. So we're just going to come in like every other customer because we look just like every other customer and we're not going to steal from them until after we get the item. Like I said, it's really just like 30 to maybe 50 percent at most, just depending on the company's policies and how they've trained their customers and all of that, are due to customer abuse. They have purchase history, they're loyal to your brand, all those things. The other like 50 to 70 percent are usually malicious, intentional fraud behaviors that can be identified just in a different way. They're not going to be identified at the time of purchase. I think that I think Diana and I said that enough last week, but that's something that we've learned both from working both in her own experience, me working with lots of retailers, us speaking with other retailers, over 50 of them every other week for the last three years. It's not possible. And if it is, you're only identifying some of the refund fraud or you're only identifying some of your losses because you're just looking at abuse. Or if you're looking at patterns of behavior and the way that they're purchasing things at the time of transaction, you also risk canceling a lot of good orders that would never turn into a losses for your company because they blend in with other customers. They use their own card. They use virtual cards. They use all the same things and usually it ties to a person or enough to a person that it looks very legitimate. So it's not going to have any of the same identifiers as payment fraud. But if I've gotten anything through in the last few minutes of my rant about the term casual fraud, it's we just can't assume that it's all or nothing. You need to look at the details and you need to be able to learn how to identify abusive customers and longtime customers who may need to be retrained or may need to be put in a timeout from... Fraudulent groups of organized criminals who are stealing from your company. They never had a history with you. They're not loyal to your brand. They're just trying to use your items to make money down the line. You need to be able to have a way to identify both and to reduce both, or else one of those groups or both of those groups will keep telling their friends and they'll get bigger and bigger. This is not an issue that stays static. It will continue to grow and grow as long as you let it happen. All right, one more thing about kind of occasional refund abuse or customer abuse versus systematic refund abuse. I just found a slide that I created for a presentation I did, I think, two years ago when I was still on that campaign. And I guess I still am, especially as we're reading articles coming out like this. It just it feels like apathy to me. If we're calling it casual fraud, does that just mean we're letting it happen? I don't know. I need to stop ranting. I understand that journalists like to come up with terms so that people go, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to read about that. But yeah, I just think it can, if companies are taking that advice, then they're missing a pretty big chunk that's just going to continue to grow. So anyway, this slide I found, I broke it out into, or I did break it out into two categories, occasional refund abuse, which is often done by customers, whether they're former customers or loyal longtime customers, and then systematic refund abuse, which really is fraud. I think at the time we we're calling it abuse, but it's very much fraud, claimed fraud. So on the occasional side, it's customers who occasionally claim inventory not received, or that they were or they'll return the items in used condition. There's no pattern to the dollar amount of refunds. They're often fans of your brand and they like your product. They can also be tracked and limited based on account history, their lifetime value, etc. On the systematic refund fraud side, they're often consumers who intentionally exploit a retailer's refund policy to obtain items for free, or really the retailer's claim policy. Customer will either do it themselves or hire a professional refunder. It's in quotation marks, but that's they call themselves, who offers their services to assist them in defrauding a specific company. They will exploit your processes, such as opening multiple accounts, make multiple small purchases before attack, or first-time purchases on each account. And account history based on their identifiers, like their name, their email, their phone number, etc., won't provide predictive behavior in the same way that customer abuse will. So those are just some of the things that make it different. But now I really need to get to what I promised to share with you. As I studied the fraud side of the of refund claims, like once Diana and I showed that on Tuesday, once we realized, aha, this actually is fraud. I had a little bit of a Sherpa for the underground refunder community where I got to see a lot of information that was within private groups. And some people will subscribe to public Telegram groups or Discord or Reddit or follow specific influencers, quote unquote, or refunders on social media. But that's really just going to tell you what they're advertising. They're not going to say how they're doing it. They're not specifically. They might, they will often use abbreviations for one of these five methods, but they're not going to say the variation of that method, right? They're not going to say, okay, I do this and I say that and I do that. But I was able to get access to a lot of those, especially in the beginning. So that helped me really understand exactly what they're doing to exploit your system. And a lot of it is around exploiting silos. The processes that fraud hasn't ever had any insight into. The processes like customer service, right? Diana talked about it on Tuesday. The only like quality assurance they were really doing and that they really had to do until the last few years was making sure that they processed the claim correctly. It wasn't was this claim legitimate or not. And there's all other silos, right? Often warehouse and fulfillment have different silos. They'll use different systems. They can't look up a customer just by the tracking ID because carriers will reissue tracking IDs every 90 days. So you can't have that be an identifier that you can search from. That gets exploited. And as I was saying this, it just became clear to me that there are five core methods or categories of refund claims that are used for fraud. And the reason I call them fraud is because it's intentional, it's systematic, it's malicious. And at the end of the day, they have your item and they didn't pay any money for it. And you're out the money and your item, as well as a lot of other costs like shipping and customer acquisition fees and everything else. Your marketing team is spending a lot of money to acquire customers. If a lot of these customers just end up stealing from you, then that's a waste of marketing's budget too. Like I said, they'll all of them have a component of exploiting a retailer's claims process. And it will always they'll always explain exploit the claims process via customer service or within their account depending on how you allow it at some point but there's two different there's two different groups of them so three of these processes will just contact customer service and make a claim the other ones will first exploit the warehouse and then make a claim and say hey i returned it where's my refund for example, like if a customer can, what I mean by in the account is if a customer can make a claim in their account and or request a return label, they wouldn't necessarily have to contact customer service. Most companies that allow claims to be made via their account don't have really any review or consideration process. Most refunds are issued or some of these refunds are issued automatically, right? So if Someone says it didn't arrive. Sometimes that happens. There are a lot of or retailers that have second guessed that and now are making, requiring a little bit more information be provided or that somebody contacts customer service on that. But that has been standard. But I would say the majority of online retailers don't have it in their account. It requires a customer contact. So that's what I'm going to say from now on on that point. But just know that if you do allow it within your account or you allow a return label to be Created within someone's account, they may not call customer service to get that return label, but they will, if they're doing one of the two methods that exploits the warehouse, they will contact customer service, whether it's through chat, through email, through phone to actually commit the crime. Go through these, starting with the most common and the easiest for especially an experienced refunder. But honestly, this is the one that everyone cuts their teeth on if they want to do it themselves as well. So you might consider it the most common. But also the first one that retailers usually try to address and what we often see is a reactive mode of, oh, my gosh, this process is being exploited. These claims are being done. We need to find something to stop them. And then they think it goes away. But within a couple of weeks, then it's the next one and then it's the next one and then they go through. And there can obviously be different. This will be this order will happen When you're first getting hit with this refund claims fraud, after a while, it'll be a series of all of the above. And that's why I personally think it's very important to address this holistically and to put in processes or a process that encompasses all five of these so that you're not continually being reactive each time they find a new exploit. And I can honestly tell you that I don't know of a single time or a single retailer that I've talked to that this hasn't been the order of their refund claims. I wish I wasn't right. It doesn't make me a fraud psychic. It's just, okay, if that isn't as much of a problem anymore, just so you know, you might want to watch your claims for this reason. So by far the first method... That's most common, and everything else is inventory not received. Sometimes it's also called so INR is usually the most common ad acronym within the retail side. Refunders and fraudsters call this DNA did not arrive. Basically, it's saying I never received my package. Sometimes it's simple like that. Sometimes it's a big, elaborate story. Sometimes all those things, there's different variations of it. But really, they know that, especially during COVID when signatures weren't required, and I don't even know if you can do that now. And at the same time, we also know that even on chargebacks, a signature doesn't always win because some issuing banks will just say, oh, we're not a handwriting expert. So I don't know if that's them or not. It's never really been super successful, but that's one of the things that can could be done and was being done pre-COVID. So claiming it doesn't arrive. And oftentimes, if a retailer hasn't been exploited with this reason code for a long time and realized, oh, this is really bad. This is getting, we're issuing a lot more refunds and a lot more, getting a lot more claims than we used to. It's generally pretty easy. That's not always the case. And I will tell you that the refunders have it down to a science. There are a lot of lists out there. This was more common. eh, I don't know. It's, It's still really common actually, but they were easier to find a few years ago. Now you have to know where to look, but they will list specific retailers by name and they will list the dollar limit that they've had been most successful in getting certain refund claims done. So they won't say what refund, oftentimes they won't say which method they're doing, but you can, I've found ways to tell either by the percentage that a refunder, a professional refunder, so fraud as a service is charging someone, like if it's, fairly low versus fairly high, that can mean different things. Also, the number of days that they tell you to expect your refund, they'll tell you how many boxes you can have, how many items you can have. So basically, they're telling you the parameters that you can shop. Because if somebody's hiring a professional refunder, they don't even contact the fraudster to do the crime for them until after they've received the item but they're giving a shopping list right so for this retailer you can buy anything under $500 or you can buy anything under sometimes it's like $25,000 usually those are for the more of the sophisticated ones now but that didn't used to be the case sometimes they'll tell you if it's a marketplace that you know it, certain rules or certain items or things like that but for the most part it's dollar amount number of boxes sometimes there's restrictions on like countries and how you paid and things like that and that is something we've seen quite a bit, is for some people they've found, or some refunders for some of the retailers, they've realized, okay, the retailers will catch you if you're using a credit card. But if you're using a specific third-party payment method, that third party will almost always take your word for it, no matter what. And I have heard some very crazy stories around that. So sometimes you'll see on those lists, hey, don't use credit card, just use this other payment method and then we can guarantee it. But these are things that if you're hiring a refunder, these are the parameters they tell you that they can quote unquote guarantee. There are also so many DIY courses now and training courses on how to do refunding. I certainly have gotten my hands on a few that are quite ridiculous, but some, and a lot of them are pretty like just very low level, but there are some as doors close, they find new windows. Like I said, oftentimes if sometimes retailers will put an affidavit in place. So that's something that Diana actually talked about in the article that we were in together in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago, where they put together, they would send an affidavit to, or I think maybe it was on a cloud form or something like that, where they would ask their customers to fill out an affidavit. And in that they would say, have a checklist. Have you checked with your neighbors? Have you done this? Have you done that? And just having that extra step and then knowing that it was going to be reviewed by a person would calm that down for a little bit. But like I said, I think I mentioned this on the last episode. I had a merchant that was like, eh, we're good now. They're not doing it anymore. And I'm like, they'll be back. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, Maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, So the next most common claim will be a uh, missing item or empty box. And I think that Diana said this to you on the other episode where if you have this claim more than three times in a day, it's OK. Clearly, somebody's lying because this isn't going to happen very often. If there's actually like, if the warehouse actually like accidentally sends out two of the three items that someone ordered or they just send out an entirely missing like empty box, That's very rare, unless you have a really incompetent warehouse, which I'm sure would have been addressed at some point already and would have gotten under control quickly. So that's one where it's like that starts to creep up and you get more than a few here and there, you know, that's their next method or that's a method that they think will work or that has already worked for them. They'll either say that the box came to them completely empty or they ordered two pairs of socks and one pair of expensive sneakers. And what do you know? The socks came, but the sneakers didn't. And those are, again, things hard for merchants to prove, right? And merchants are awfully worried, often worried. We don't want them to call their bank, so we'll just issue a refund. Those add up very quickly because oftentimes the things that are targeted for malicious refund fraud are your most expensive and popular items. They're the things that they can resell at a high value. So it's something that you need to be aware of and try to have a claims process. Look at things like the weight, right? Look at different... There's different things that you can look at, both at the time that they make the claims, what are they saying, and how often have we heard this exact same story, things like that, as well as looking at the weight of the item that came to them. And maybe the weight did change from the distribution center to their house. And not all tracking will show that, but some will. And there have been cases where there's somebody in a distribution center for a shipping carrier that really likes specific products. And whenever they see a box that has a specific retailer's logo on the outside, they might look inside. But that also is very rare, right? And so if you're having a large spike in those, the first thing you can do is start to look for commonalities, right? What fulfillment center did they go out of? What distribution center were they all shipped to? Like different things like that. And then if you can't find commonalities, then put something else in place to be able to research those. The next one is items are damaged. In this one, they basically just will say things like, and this is the easiest example I have, but there's so many things like it's a leaky battery. So I, anything with a lithium ion battery, it's against the law to knowingly put a leaky lithium ion battery in the mail. So when that happens, oftentimes a retailer will say, okay, you can keep that one, but we'll send you another one. Or And sometimes the customer will say, okay, and they'll try to double dip. Because then they'll say the second one didn't arrive, and if the retailer goes, "Okay, so are we sending you a third one?" They're like, "No, just send me my money back. This is ridiculous. I'm never shopping with you again." So sometimes they'll double dip. That doesn't work as much as it used to, but that's one of the things that they'll do with damage. Sometimes they'll say that there were holes in them, or there. I've heard some very creative stories. It really depends on the item. If it's something breakable, or there's a screen or something like that, they can say that there was empty gla- that there was broken glass and you're not going to want them to ship that back either. So things like that, claiming items are damaged. And like I said, it does very much vary on what the item is and all of that, but those are just some examples of what what can be used on that one. And sometimes that one skips. Like I said, it really just depends on the items and what has worked for these particular fraudsters before or what their friends have told them work. So I know that some retailers have started to ask for customers that make this claim to provide a picture of the damaged item. And I think that's a good idea. However, it's pretty manual and you should probably double check if, the, if you do this, I would just recommend that you do a reverse image search in a browser to make sure that that wasn't a picture that they found online, because chances are it usually is. But again, it's also just so manual, right? Like you have to have an email address for them to send it to them and and all these things. It's possible. Or if you have an app and there's a quick messaging service or in the chat that can happen, sure, maybe it's something that you allow. But that's just something that I just don't think is sustainable for long, especially because They're already finding some workarounds. There are other workarounds as well, but that's kind of the most common. You can put into a search bar broken whatever the item is and probably find something and then send it off, and the merchant might believe it. (laughs) So it's a good idea, but like I said, it's also just so manual. Sometimes the retailer will say that they absolutely have to return the damaged item. And if that's the case, they'll combine this method with, or this reason with, one of the next two methods that exploit the warehouse first and then customer service. Like I said, these last two are going to target the warehouse first and then customer service. And these are things that I think a lot of retailers are very familiar with. But one on the fraud side is called boxing. We'll often call it returning items that they didn't buy from you. And that can vary. Like for luxury goods companies, that can mean that they bought very expensive designer, a pair of designer shoes or a designer handbag, and what they return is a very bad quality replica of a fake item. And then that becomes like a trademark issue. And it's oh, all these different departments of the company have to get involved in things like that. And I created a process for one of my clients around that specifically. And thankfully, they had CCTV footage of everything that was shipped. And so we were able to reference that. And I created templates of letters for them to send out and say, hey, we are not able to process your refund because the item that you sent us was not what we sent to you. And here it is. Now, I really strongly suggested that the retailer return the item. That way, if the customer issued a chargeback, they couldn't say they kept my item and so it must have been good or something like that. But some retailers have a problem with that, especially if it's designer putting counterfeit items back into the system. So a lot of things to think about. Like Diana and I said, these are not processes or things that you can do in a vacuum. A lot of fraud departments have had pretty Good, I don't want to say a long leash. I don't like that term, but a fair amount of autonomy in deciding their policies around payment fraud and all of that. But in this case, you're going to need to learn a lot from other departments and you're also going to have to advise them and say, hey, you know, what if we did it this way? Or what if we just made them do a little more work with this? Things like that other forms of boxing, and this was especially common in the first like year and a half of COVID because warehouses were socially distancing. And so they were often prioritizing items going out since that was money coming into the company more than items coming in as refunds. So sometimes those returns would pile up for weeks. And that's the whole point of this specific method. They're sending garbage back. They're sending a can of peas that has the same weight as the item that you sent them. They're sending a piece of plywood that has is the exact same size and weight as a TV monitor or a computer monitor or a TV screen. There's so many things. And in fact, actually there were, they aren't as common now, but there were a lot of entrepreneurial people who weren't necessarily committing the crime, but they offered boxing services. And so there would be retailers on our calls that would be like, is anyone else getting a lot of boxes from this particular state with little green army men in it? And it's, oh, yeah, us too. And then I'd be able to look on the other side and go, yep, that's a boxer who provides a service. And that's like his trademark or another one's piñata candy or another one is garbage. Sometimes they'll make sure that it's the same weight if that's required by the merchant. Other times they won't. But what they're hoping for is the warehouse isn't processing that refund right away. So they have a window of when the item is returned to the warehouse and when the warehouse opens it and sees this is not at all what we sent, and they're calling customer service and saying, I sent my item back and I see in this tracking number, That it was returned and received by your warehouse three days ago. Where's my money? Prior to refund fraud just being so bad in that scale, it would make sense, right? We'll trust the customer. We'll trust the person who ordered the item that they returned the item and we'll give them their money back. Now, I recommend that merchants wait until items have been opened by the warehouse and it's been notated in the account. And oftentimes there should be a process where you're sending an email or a formal letter or whatever you choose back to the customer saying, hey, we were unable to process your refund because of X, Y, Z. That would be the best practice. And oftentimes the refunders who are doing this fraudulently and aren't customers of yours, and they're using their own credit card, they don't want to issue a chargeback. It takes to very low percentage of professional refunders that will turn to chargebacks. Now, granted, Abusive customers are a little bit different. They might have a better relationship with their bank and might be able to say, hey, I want to issue this or something like that. But that's just another difference. But a lot of them, it's funny how many retailers have started to put to make it more difficult on each one of these methods and how many times the person miraculously finds it. There's a story that I've shared when I've presented on this topic or in my trainings as well, where there was a post in one of the groups, and usually this doesn't happen in the public groups, but it did, where a professional refunder posted someone's full name and address who was a client of his, and he said, hey, he tried to scam me. And a lot of people would ask, right, if the refunder isn't charging, is only charging a percentage of the order, and they're only charging it after the refund is issued to the customer, why would the customer pay the professional for Calling customer service, returning a box full of a bunch of just junk to warehouse. If they don't have to, this is why he blasted him and said he scammed him. And he said it, which merchant? I know that merchant. So I took a little screenshot, sent it to the merchant and said, Hey, it might be interesting for you to look up this order because clearly we know that it was refund fraud. And she wrote me back and she was laughing hysterically. And she goes, this is really funny. She's like, I read the notes in customer service. And first day, the customer in quotation marks called our customer service and said that they got an empty box. There wasn't an item in it. And this was a really very popular and pretty expensive fitness watch, especially back then, like one of the brand ones. And so very commonly thefted as well as purchased. There was nothing in the box. And he went on to say, I looked everywhere. I shook it. I did everything. I checked in my mailbox. I checked it with my mailman. Nothing fell out. There's no hole in the box. I don't know what happened. And customer service was like, okay, they hadn't had this one as much yet. And so they didn't have a process around it as much. So they gave him a refund. The next day, the customer in quotation marks called back about the same shipment and it was a miracle. He found the item. And he asked customer service to please charge his cardigan. <laughs> Obviously, it was the fraudster that was had been hired by the customer to do that. But I think the slide that I have for that one says something like hell hath no fury, like a fraudster scorned or something like that. And there's a little bit of schadenfreude there, right? Because you're like, yeah, that's what you get. There are actually several cases like that where people would post like screenshots to vouch for somebody's services and it would have an order number on it or it would have an email or a name that, and I would know the merchant or they'd be in our group. So I'd send a screenshot and go, hey, this is a verified refund order. You might want to look on it on your end. And then we they'd often share what it looked like. So there's just a lot of lessons there. And I will say that boxing isn't as common as it used to be in the first couple of years of COVID because Warehouses are now trying to prioritize processing returns because of it, as well as they're catching up more. They're not as socially distanced. They're not as low on employees and staff and all that. And they don't usually have as many orders as they did in the height of COVID. So this one's waning, but don't count it out because sometimes it will happen, especially if they notice that, oh, they don't process their returns for a while. I'm gonna go back to this. They are constantly studying and testing your systems, just like they do on payment fraud. They're doing it on refund fraud. I just can't stress that enough. I see so many posts about that, and it's quite fascinating. And this last one, I will say that there are the most variations of this one, and this one probably causes the most havoc on retailers. And usually, it's after retailers know that they're targets of refund claims fraud because they've already experienced the first four methods and. Different variations of them, but those different claims. And this one, the only thing I know to call it is what the fraudsters call it, because we don't really have a name for it on this side. It's not like INRs and DNAs where retailers call it INR, fraudsters call it DNA. This one they call FTID, which stands for Fake Tracking ID. And there are so many methods on this, and I legitimately cannot share all of them on this public platform because we don't need them to know what we know. That will be something that we will share in our upcoming training on a refund claim fraud soon that I will be posting more information for. There's a waitlist link in the show notes on Thursday's episode. I will try to remember to include it in this episode, too, if you're interested. It will have a small registration fee, but we always make sure that you get a lot of ROI on anything that you pay for, especially through Fraudology. So FTID, a couple of them, a couple of them are known, or I kind of will talk about them a little bit differently. Often this means that there's track, there's manipulation on the tracking label. Sometimes it's sophisticated. Sometimes it's literal cut and paste. It really depends on what they can get away with. They'll always try the path of least resistance, but if they need to up their game, they will. So they're often taking advantage of the fact that warehouses and really all departments can't ID a single account in their system only by the tracking number. But all that the carrier needs to return the item to the warehouse or fulfillment center is a tracking number. They need the tracking number and the shipping address. They don't need the ship to address. They don't need the ship from address. And so oftentimes the ship from address will either be spoofed or will be removed. And No other papers will be in the box. There will be no way to track, to trace this empty box or box full of junk. Definitely not the things that were originally ordered on that order. There will be no way to track it to a specific customer. Sometimes there's just a label with no customer information on it at all, with a ship to address on a bubble envelope. Sometimes it's on big boxes. It just really varies. Because the tracking numbers are reused by shipping carriers every 60 or 90 days, that's not a function that can be pulled up for customers, right? That's not the only one. Oftentimes you need account number, you need order number, you need email, you need phone number. None of those things are on the tracking number. If there isn't a packing slip inside the box, the warehouse doesn't know who to attribute it to. So oftentimes they just throw away the box or they don't have a process. So they just get rid of it or they don't know what it is. Now, I think these days, a lot of them know that it's something, but especially for the longest time, there were people contacting me like, why is our warehouse getting all of these big envelopes with like pizza coupons in them for some random city? And I'm like, oh, that's (laughs) FTID. But when they call customer service and again, or they contact customer service in some way, they can say, hey, my item arrived at your warehouse. The tracking number says it, but I haven't gotten my money back because the warehouse wasn't able to notate the account. But the person calling customer service will sure give you the account number or the order number. So customer service looks it up and sees, oh, this was returned to our warehouse. That's weird, at least according to our shipping carrier. It was sent to our warehouse, but our warehouse hasn't checked it in yet. Must be an error on our side. We'll issue a refund. Once that works, they will do it to the 10th degree and you will see thousands of them. There's other ways of doing this. One is knowing that the shipping carriers usually will only show when an item is delivered to a zip code. And this is primarily in the U.S and not the specific street address. So you can imagine, there might be random junk being shipped to all different kinds of random addresses, or even for other retailers sometimes, just so they can prove to customer service that the tracking number that is linked to their return was returned to that zip code. Now, are there other methods that may look very weird to you on your end, where the final status was changed or things like that where it's really weird. I There are definitely reasons for that and there are methods to that. I just yeah that one is responsible for some very big ones and I'm trying to reach out to a few merchants that I know for sure are getting this one but I mean, honestly, guys, if I could clone myself, I would just tell everyone, hey, this is what's happening. This is what's being done to you. But it's already hard enough for me to stay on top of all the things I want to do. And there are so many. But like I said, so while those are typically in or chronological order, once you're starting to receive all of them, then they'll be all over the place, right? You'll have some groups that prefer this, some groups that prefer that, some groups that can get away with this while other groups can't get away. And that's why it's so important to... Really understand what the problems are and at the very minimum, start tracking the claim reason. That should be like the very first baseline thing you do, because then you can start to see the data and how they go up and down and what's historical and then what's all of a sudden and what's spiked. And then that also gives you a narrative to be able to explain the story that the data is telling to other departments within your company and then drill down into those specific claims and say, okay, it looks like the 60 percent of the people who are claiming that they got an empty box. This is what they had in common or things like that. But you cannot rely for hostile refund fraud. You just can't rely on identifiers being connected to other accounts within your system because they are creating I'm not going to say fake or synthetic accounts, but they are often using variations of their own name or addresses that they can be tied to. Things like that, that payment fraud screening would think looks completely normal because it is. And that is the person making the purchase there's just no way for your payment fraud system to say, hey, in two weeks, this person's going to send you a box of gumballs and then they're going to ask for a refund. It's just, that's why it has to be treated differently. Like I said, there are also some more sophisticated variations of each one and others will try to overwhelm you with volume. So sometimes you're just going to get a whole bunch of one, even though, okay, I think we've been able to catch this. We just have to do this or this, or it's manual or whatever, which doesn't have to be, there is a systematic way. You have to start somewhere. And every company is ending the wheel a little bit on how they're handling this, which is why I wanted to do this episode. And the one with Diana as well is to say, hey, there are some things that have worked for people. And if I could share them on a public platform, I would. But I think that you'll get a lot more value out of a formal training session where you can go back and get the recording or being able to talk to us offline, which I don't know, I think I don't know if this is something I should even mention on the podcast, but I thought about having something like office hours once a month and one of them being specific to refund fraud and maybe asking Diana or other retailers that are in our group to join those calls too. And just for retailers that want to ask questions of their peers in a private way. And that's something I could, I could, do. I don't know, I think once or twice, I wouldn't be able to do it a lot, but that is something else I've been thinking about. I have no shortage of ideas of what to do. It's just a matter of like, when are they all going to get done? But I'm doing my best. That's why I really appreciate the podcast. I also wanted to say that sometimes they'll mix and match methods or they'll move on to playing even dirtier games, like I said, with having ways to manipulate the final status of a tracking number. So it might say it was returned to the retailer uh, and it never made it to the mer- to the customer or It might say it was lost in transit. Really, it was delivered a week or two before. So that's a sophisticated way, as well as there are a lot of them that are recruiting insiders. That's something that I've seen quite a bit where I've said this for years before this was even super malicious, but and just out of control and scale. But your customer service are some of the lowest paid employees in your company, but they have the keys to the kingdom, especially if you work for a large company there may be people reaching out to your employees, whether it's on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or wherever they say that they work, wherever online it may say that they work to say, hey, you want to make an extra 50 bucks or 100 bucks every time I call you? And those are things that need to be reported on as well. Your customer service agents can have reporting. And so you can see what's a normal amount for a customer service agent to refund in a day or claims, right? So it's not returns that were legitimately returned, but these claims, and I wonder what are these ones doing? And there were a couple articles even, I think it was two years ago, where Amazon publicly shared that because they wanted all of their employees to know. So they put out a press release and said, hey, we caught this guy in Arizona who was doing this and he was issuing claims and issuing high dollar refunds to everyone he knew. So he was telling his friends how to make orders and do all that for him. And then he would front them with the money at first and then they'd give it back to him and he'd get to sell the item. So that happens. So I do think that this is something that is really good to train customer service on. That's something that Diana did. And she's like I said, she's going to share that in the training that we provide in May as well. Training your customer service agents on what to look out for so you can have them be your front line. But also to say, hey, if you're recruited and even if it's tempting, maybe don't do that. (laughs) But no, um, here we will prosecute. I was just thinking about how I heard someone at a conference once speaking, talking on this topic, and I made the mistake of going in because I knew that they didn't know much about this, but they are a consultant as well. And they knew this was a hot topic at a conference that we were all at. Oh, not everyone. There was it was a smaller conference, but it was a year or two. I think it was two years ago now. And they said, what you do is that you offer a bounty for all of your customer service agents. So you say, hey, if you catch someone trying to commit refund claims fraud and claim something that isn't true, we'll give you 50 bucks or we'll give you this or that. And I was horrified because that sounds good in theory. How long is it going to take for customer service agents to just start denying legitimate claims so they can get that money or have their friends do it and do that? And then, oh, I found it. And then, There's just so many ways around it that I could think of. I was like, that is not the answer. So I think my final thing is, listen, be careful who you take advice from, right? And that goes for me too. Double check my work. I Please correct me if I'm wrong. And for other people. And then also if you see articles in publications, or others that, you know, are working with, you know, that they have quotes from specific solution providers, or specific solution providers have blog posts, and they say, this is 100% your problem, or over here is, and guess what, we have a solution for that cause. Be weary of it, because it's not as simple as saying all of these are one thing, or all of them aren't. And there is A fair amount that can also be shored up just by looking at every single step in the process, as Diana talked about, I think, on Tuesday. And just looking for any kind of waste, right, or anything that could be not even exploited, but just lost or isn't efficient. Because honestly, this whole process of from items being ordered at checkout on the website all the way to being shipped to the customer. And then if there's a returns or a refund or anything like that back, a lot of that has not been audited or looked at end to end. And I don't know how long because so many different teams are responsible for different parts. So while I know that a lot of fraud departments don't need extra work, this is a really good way to also show your company and your leadership that you're not just about fraud and chargebacks. You're not just about payment fraud and chargebacks. You are about revenue protection and you are about looking for any area that you can save your company money while also making sure that you're providing really good customer service. And there will never, I will never, ever tell anyone that the way to solve refund claims fraud is just by not issuing claims because there are definitely legitimate ones. But knowing those sometimes small, but those different differentiators, because again, when it's hostile and it's systematic and it's intentional, there are patterns. Whereas with good customers, they're going to be all over the place. They're, it's going to look very different when you start diving into the date. And my final point that I wanted to say is, like with payment fraud, Refund claims fraud is a zombie. It's not a dragon. And if you haven't heard that analogy, I suggest you go back. I know of at least two people who borrowed that analogy and shared it in job interviews and it may or may not have been the main factor to get their job. It probably wasn't. But at least in one case, I know that One of the people who did the interview circled back with the person after they got the job and said, I really appreciated your perspective on how fraud is like a zombie. They're like fighting zombies. They continually regenerate and adapt to the tools that we have. So we have to, we never can say, hey, we're done with this. So we're okay. We need to know what they're going to do next and what they're going to do next and solve for those and not just one at a time. Refund claims fraud is a zombie too. You need a full scope strategy. You Can't assume that they'll go away forever, especially if you've just played whack a mole with one of the methods. Processes and technology combined have been most successful at keeping attempts low and manageable and also really insightful and provides a lot of. I can't stress enough how many times I know of one merchant whose chief marketing officer has started to have a weekly call with them after some of the things that they found when they were diving into this. When does that happen? But they was like wow I didn't realize all this and also the marketing departments getting stolen from because for every new customer that ends up stealing from you they don't track that but they're basically paying for that right in advertising or in other pieces of ways that they are acquiring more customers all right as always this one went longer than I expected but I hope that you found it fascinating it's a little different talking about these things without my slides without saying hey look at this example or that example but hopefully it was helpful. If anything, you have learned that people, and especially people who want to steal, are nothing but creative, that is for sure. And I know we've all said it a million times, individually and together, but man, if these guys just put their creativity and ingenuity to something like hearing cancer. That would have been figured out a long time ago. I'm looking forward to speaking with you on Thursday and having you hear my conversation with a pretty awesome guest. And I will talk to you then.